All my life, I've been little. Surprise. Well, there is one shot of me that I wouldn't think anybody could describe as little. And for good measure, go ahead and show how it came in. But for most of my life, as these next few pictures will show, I have been little. I am always the smallest one on the team. I am always in the front row of every picture. I'm number one, by the way. I have dealt with this or handled it. Like, this kid's almost like sitting on a knee and got me right there, right? It's not good. And then finally one more. Uh, Being little is just something that has always been me. And honestly, being little is not much fun. You're often both literally and figuratively overlooked, right? You uh, are told or are not chosen. Uh, when we were in New York, the person goes, wait, you're the leader of this group? If you remember that? <laughs> it, it, it is one of these things. It's, a, it's one of these things that I think growing up I probably tried to ignore mostly. And at some points that's been to my benefit and at others, as the Napoleon complex has been thrown out in my direction, that has probably led to maybe some kind of pride and arrogance within me. But if I'm being honest, 95% of the time, my size doesn't really bother me. But about 5% of the time, it gets me. And those words, when somebody says it, they stink. Because I'm being defined by what I am, not who I am, And it becomes a real challenging thing for me. It it hurts when persons or people that I've had deep friendships with or long-standing relationships with will still define me as, hey, yeah, he's that short guy over there. And those things that I try to work against so often become the natural way to describe me. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe it's not dealing with height or something like that, but maybe it's another physical attribute. Maybe it's color of skin or hair or a physical attribute that you wish you didn't have but you were born with. Maybe it is a learning disability you grew up with or a speech problem that you've always dealt with. Some of you understand what I'm saying. To be described by something that you inherited is tough. Not by who you are, but by what you are. For me, the word little has never been a fun word. It has always been a challenging word, and a word that I've always kind of worked to prove against. This morning, we're going to look at the word little. Sorry for the deep dive into who Jordan is and all of that. But we're going to look at that word little. And it's often used in a really negative light by Jesus. But I do hope when we leave this morning that we can redeem this word and feel the power of it as well. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17 this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. I'll set up what's going on in Matthew 17. Jesus takes his buddies up a mountain. But he doesn't take all 12. He takes 
that just the three of the inner circle for what is called the transfiguration. So Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, go up a mountain. And while these three are up on the mountain, they see the glory of the Lord on full display. They see in this angelic-like glory of God scene where Jesus and then two other guys that they recognize as Moses and Elijah show up, and their only natural response is to fall down immediately in worship and exaltation. And there's a little bit of fear, I think. Then they hear loudly and audibly the voice of the Lord booming down and saying something that already has said before, saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then they get up after this mountaintop worship experience and they head down the mountain. Jesus instructs them not to tell anyone. And then as they kind of step down the mountain, they come face to face with the mundane once again. And this is how our life operates often. Spiritual highs and how are we going to handle the mundane? And this is what happens starting in verse 14. It says, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to them, kneeling before him, and they said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. This guy's coming up, my son is having seizures, and there's a hint of demon possession because it seems like the seizures are trying to kill him. When there's a fire nearby, he is see, the seizure throws him into the fire. When there's water, it tries to drown him. The guy is going, I need help or else he's going to die. Then he says in verse 16, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Now we're not sure if this was the other nine while Jesus and the three were up on the mountain. We're not sure if this was one of the three that they've come down off the mountain and then they had this mundane experience that they couldn't be faithful in. We're not sure if this has just happened when it's happened. But we are sure of this. The disciples tried and they failed. Verse 17, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Jesus doesn't mince his words or hold back his frustration. After revealing his glory and his greatness to the, the inner circle, after they saw that he is the Messiah, the sent one, that what they have been believing and what they have been pursuing is now confirmed because what they have seen on the mountain, he now tells them, O oh, faithless and twisted generation. His followers who he has granted power are failing. See, he has already showed them and told them and allowed them to cast out demons. In Matthew 10, verse 7, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to go and to preach and to proclaim his gospel and his kingdom. They go out, and then in verse 8 it says, and it should be on the screen, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out <coughs> demons. This is what the is the power they've already been given. This is what they know they can accomplish. This is what they have already done. And then comes this man with his son, and they cannot cast him out. They cannot heal him. Jesus is frustrated, not because not just because his disciples failed, 
but they failed to do something they used to be able to do. They are regressing in their following. They're going backwards. Have you ever felt this? Where there were times in your life that you look back and you go, I exercised faith in so many great ways. I was so bold in sharing. I was so confident in trusting the providence and uh, sovereignty of God. I was seeing God work in amazing ways and things that I could never have fathomed. But now, I'm in a place of pretty spiritual low. I'm in a place where fear is actually shaping my life and not faith. The disciples are regressing. And Jesus is frustrated. He looks at him and he says, faithless and twisted generation. These are words we expect to be said to Pharisees and Sadducees. These are words we would expect to have been heard when he speaks to Samaritans. And yet he is talking to the twelve. The ones who will say in Matthew 19 that we have left everything to follow you. The ones who have gotten out of the boat, they left their father in the boat. The ones who have given up their lucrative positions, collecting taxes, and they're following. And he says to them, faithless and twisted generation. Jesus is frustrated because his disciples, his protégés, his, the ones he is leaving the keys to the kingdom of God with the Uh, the job and the responsibility to spread it are now going backwards. Jesus heals the son. And then we get to the meat of what we're going to talk about today. Verse 19. The disciples have to know, why couldn't we do it? It says the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, why could we not cast it out? I'm just going to read the first half of 20 and we'll get into the last half later. He said to them, because... Of your little faith. I told you this morning to start. Little is not a fun word for me to hear. Little faith is not a fun phrase for the disciples to hear. It conjures up memories of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus was teaching about anxiety. And he spoke uh, about how God takes care of the birds of the air. The grass of the field. And yet... Because of your little faith, you're worrying about what you're going to eat, where you're going to sleep, where you're going to lay your head, uh, how you're going to be clothed. He says, oh, you of little faith. Or you've probably heard it, oh, ye of little faith. It just comes off easier that way, I think. It also reminds them of the night that they were on the boat. Jesus was asleep. He was exhausted, and the storms came up. The winds and the waves were threatening to capsize the little boat that they were on. And so they go and they shake Jesus awake, screaming, save us, we are perishing. And Jesus, before he worries about the storm, he rebukes his disciples first. Then he rebukes the wind and the waves. Oh, you of little faith. It's the same phrase he used when Peter was stepped out of the boat in full faith to walk on the water to go to Jesus. But then he begins to sink after just a few steps. And what does he say as he's picking him up out of the water? Oh, you of little faith. This is that piercing phrase heard over and over again by the disciples. It is that 
scarlet phrase that they hate to wear, that they hate for Jesus to point out. It is throwing salt into the womb. It is that scab that will not heal. It is that one inadequacy they wish they could cover up and nobody would ever see. It's their flaw. It's their fear. It's their one thing they want to conceal and not have exposed. And Jesus puts his thumb on it. You want to know why you failed? Your little faith. This honest evaluation that we wish Jesus would sugarcoat or flavor so it goes down a little easier. He leaves gritty and harsh and severe. You failed because of your lack of faith. No one else to blame. No other reason. It's because of this lack of faith. And honestly, if we stopped at that sentence, it would seem really harsh. And it would be really hard to receive. And I think that Jesus knows that his disciples are kind of getting to one of those points where they can be breaking. Following Jesus is difficult. I'll say over and over again, it never was, never is, and it never will be the popular thing to do. But it is the right thing. And it's the only thing that provides life. Following Jesus never was easy. And as they get to this point... The disciples, I think, are starting to kind of crack. And so Jesus adds the second half of his statement there in verse 20. He says, For truly I say to you, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to the mountains, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. If you have the faith, of a grain of a mustard seed. See, Jesus has told about mustard seeds before. Matthew 13, he speaks of the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. He says in verse 30 that that a man took this seed and he sowed it in his field. And it was the smallest of all the seeds, but when it had grown, it was larger than any of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can make their nest in its branches. What is he saying? The mustard seed is the smallest seed but it has the largest results. The mustard seed, while it's seemingly insignificant, becomes the biggest shrub in the garden, reaching heights of 12 feet tall. What does it do? It becomes hope and security for the whole ecosystem of the garden. How? It provides shade for the weary. It provides protection for the worried. It provides a home for the birds, and it provides security for those that hide in its branches. This smallest seed is life-giving to the whole garden. What is Jesus saying? If you had the faith the size of this little bitty thing, you could do amazing things. Standing at the base of this mountain that he's just walked off of, he says you could speak to that mountain and you'd say, move from here to there, and it would move. In Luke 17, he says you could say to that tree, uproot yourself and throw it in the sea, and it will happen. Amazing things happen with faith. Now, let's break up the series for just a second. Uh, I would imagine that the disciples' heads were just like, wait a second. Wonder what all we could do, right? Like, if we have faith, there seems to be, like, I've never thought about moving mountains, but if I can do that, then I'm sure there's some other smaller, cool things that I could do as well. Has anybody in here seen the movie Shazam yet? 
I know Matthew Day has, okay. <laughs> Lindsay must know where I'm going with this. Shazam is the story of a 13-year-old boy who, when he says the word Shazam, turns into a 30-year-old superhero, all right? It's pretty cool. Um, I enjoy the movie. It's a lot of fun. Go see it. Um, but what's really fun, one of the scenes is he doesn't know, other than he's a new body and a suit on, he doesn't know his powers. And so they make a YouTube video of trying to figure out what all he can do. So he attempts to fly, but false. But then he gets shot by a bullet, and he deflects it. And so then they're like, well, let's shoot you in the face and see if you can deflect that. <laughs> Terrible idea. Luckily, it works, or else the movie ends at about minute 25. Uh, so it's a fun scene of, like, let's go through the list of all the superheroes' powers and see what they can do, and they begin to try it. Now, I understand the disciples know that we're not just wielding the power of God for our own good and our own pleasure, all right? We've talked about this throughout small group all year. Prayers for our own pleasure and our own good are not answered by God. But when we pray in line with his will and his way, in ways that are honoring and exalting to him and they're bringing about his kingdom, those things are accomplished and nothing is impossible in those ways. And so I think the disciples understand that if we have faith, we can do some amazing things, some life-giving, life-changing, world-changing things for the sake of God's glory, if we have faith. It's way more than just changing topography or rearranging landscape. We can do some awesome things. So I want to illustrate this with a story as we close. From the scripture, a few weeks ago, I was reading the book uh, in the book of Daniel. And everybody knows the story of Daniel in the lion's den. You know, like, it's just kind of a, a common story. But I'm going to kind of retell it a little bit so that we don't miss some of the details that are important. Um, Daniel is an exile. What does that mean? Daniel, in a sense, was taken from his home country and shipped, not in a sense, literally, and shipped or walked across the land to the capital of the Babylonian Empire. They took all the gifted and talented kids and they wanted to take the best and brightest and try to build them up and make them good for their country. So, some of you are like, oh, that would have been me, I guess. Uh, <laughs> if you sat by somebody that did that, just hit them. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, Daniel is taken and then he has like a Joseph-like story. He gets the favor of God and the hand of God is on him, and he rises to power. He becomes one of three VPs over all of the land. And then it says in 6.3 of Daniel that the king, Darius, really wanted to make him the sole VP. And so they were, he was going to be elevated. So jealousy happens, right? Jealousy happens among all the other rulers and leaders of the land. And they say, hey, king, you deserve all honor and praise. And if anybody bows down to anybody but you for the next 30 days, they should be thrown into the den of lions. King's like, hey, I like this. You know, he's stroking his ego. That sounds good. So he says, yeah, I'll sign that. So he signs it. Daniel 6.10 reads this way. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. I appreciate that final line. One, Daniel has proven his commitment and his I don't know if this is a word or not, devoutness to God uh, for years. 
And so when this decree comes down, it doesn't change him. He just continues to do what he's done. He, he knows that there might be in, uh, consequences that incur, but he's willing to take those on because he wants to worship his God and he, he demands to do that. So the consequences do incur. He's thrown into the lion's den, right? We know that. The ring, I mean, the, the king is not happy about it. He's kind of tearfully doing this, but he has to be just to what he declares. So he does that. He puts his signet ring on it, locks it up, and says nothing can change until morning. But then the king does something interesting. It says in verse uh, 16, he says to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. He believes that king, the, the God of Daniel is powerful. Then in verse 18 it says, The king went to his palace and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Now, he wasn't cramming for a test there, all right? He was simply giving all he had in prayer and in petition to the God of Daniel to save him. It says then at verse 19, Then at daybreak the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. As he came near, he cried out, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to, to deliver you from the lions. And then he hears the voice of Daniel from the tomb saying, O king, live forever, forever. My God sent his angels to shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. They hug and they get excited about him coming out of the tomb. I mean, the, not the tomb, the den of lions. But here's what I want you to see. Okay? God proved his faithfulness and his ability to the king in that moment. But then see what this little act of faith resulted in. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And then listen to who... Uh, King Darius describes God to be. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Daniel's act of faith was to go and pray what he had always done. But from his act of faith, the glory and the power of the Lord was on display for every nation, every language, every people. This pagan king was now promoting the God of the Hebrews to everybody who could hear that he is the living God, that he is a God that is able to do the amazing things. This one small step we have no clue how many eternities were changed, how many people came to faith, how many understood and came to realize the power and the goodness of the God of the Hebrews. I don't think Daniel would have known, oh yeah, man, if I do this, great things are going to happen. No, Daniel got up in his window and prayed because that's who he was and that's what he did. He allowed God to handle the outcome. He didn't worry about the quantity. He didn't worry about what was going to take place in the output. He just knew what his input was supposed to be. 
to be faithful to his God. Now, there is one last question we have to ask in, in the last 30, 45 seconds we have. Let's do it. How do I have, how do I not have little faith, but have enough faith to be like a mustard seed, right? Like, what do I do? In your Bible, really cool thing, if you still have it open, somebody read verse 21 to me. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Was that in your Bible actually written? Okay, verse 21 doesn't, it's not in the main part, right? So, in the best manuscripts, verse 21 doesn't exist. So just one of those random Bible things, right? Like, verse 21 doesn't exist in there, but there, so some people think that maybe that was a commentary type thing added, a note added in addition, like, hey, if you want this kind of faith, it comes about by prayer and fasting. It only shows itself through prayer and fasting. It's in Mark, though. It is in Mark, yeah. yeah. And it's in my version. It's in your Bibles? Yeah, okay. It's in my version. Okay. Well, sorry. Some of them. Okay. ESV. Yes. All right. Stop. All right. So, thank you, Sloan. You got my back. Yeah. That's one of our BFFs. Anyways, here's what I want to say. There is another place, even if 21 isn't in your Bible, okay? There's another place that I think we get this same idea. How do we have this faith? I think Jesus says it very clearly in John 15. Abide in me. Abide in me and I in you, and you can do amazing things. He will say, uh, whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding in God is how we live out this faith. How we take hold of this faith, and then how we know how to wield this faith that we have. So abiding is the key, in my opinion, to how do we how do we enact it all. So hopefully we've seen little faith is always used in a, a negative way throughout by Jesus. But Jesus doesn't set the bar super high. He says, I guess he does. Don't hold me on that theology. But <laughs> Jesus says the faith, even if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could do things that we've never seen before. So are we leaning into that and believing that God can do the impossible through us? He can do life-altering, world-changing things through us. That's what I hope we get from today.